We're going to be looking at a prayer in the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there with me, and uh, we'll be looking at that here in just a moment. Before we go there, though, I just want to ask you a question. Don't raise your hand. Who is your friend? In this church, who is your friend? Do you have any friends? Do you have people that you could call if there was an emergency? People that you can sort of share and bear your soul with if you needed to. People that could give you the hand that you needed at a moment's notice. One of the best ways that you can do that is by having a consistent point of intersection with other people. A time where you're continually meeting. I, I diagram it like this. My life, this other person's life, and we just continue to meet and we have contact. And the two best ways to do that is either through service, and the other way we try to facilitate it is through our life groups. That each week you're getting together with other like-minded believers who are there and who are ready to get to know the Lord better, but also to help you know the Lord better and to help you help them to know the Lord better and build up your relationships. So I want to give you an exhortation. If you don't have that with other people, you need to look, uh, go on the website, look under our life groups, vrbob.org slash LG. And you will find exactly what, what life groups are being offered and the ones that you can be a part of. And if you, Wednesday nights, the Bedrosians right here in the front, they have recently told us they got plenty of room. And they serve filet mignon every Wednesday night. So if you want to you wanna come and be a part of that, by all means, do so. They'd be glad to have you. But so would any of the other groups. But don't be out there all by yourself. Find your place and begin to plug in. Well, one of the things you'll do in a life group is you will pray together. And uh, we're going to be looking at the prayer of Paul in the book of Philippians. In fact, this is what we're doing for this month. We're looking at Paul's prayers with the express purposes of asking ourselves, well, how should we pray? How did Paul pray? Now, I can't be the only person who has at times wondered, you know, my prayer life feels somewhat anemic. And then before long, God sort of becomes a glorified Santa Claus, and I just continue to throw my requests out for this, that, and the other. Give me health, give me wealth, get, make me safe. And uh, then before long, we kind of get into a routine like that. But is that all there is for us in our prayers? Health is a good thing to pray for. Your uh, needs being met, that's a good thing to pray for. And your safety, all good things. But is that going to be it? Well, today... We'll see, Paul is going to elevate that for us in his uh, letter to the Philippians. Now, if you're ever in a time or a mood in which you're feeling a little bit depressed, man, get out your Bible, go to the book of Philippians. Paul will cheer you up. This is a happy letter. This is a great letter. There's no drama, all right? It's, it's just, it's great things that he's saying about this church. The Philippian church was a great church. And spiritually, they were on a great trajectory. So what do you pray for a church that's doing great? What, where do you go with that? Now, Philippians, we get it from the name of the city, and the city is in the eastern part of Macedonia. And um, when you think of this city, what was it like? It's kind of like a mini Rome, even though they're in what was technically Greece. They loved Rome. They wanted to be like Rome. And so there was a military garrison that was there. They had a lot of retirees from the military that lived there too. Kind of reminds you of here a little bit, right? We've got the Pentagon down the road, and a lot of times people retire out of the military here. But it was the same thing there. And so the people dressed and they acted uh, in accordance with this Roman affiliation that they had. 
It's kind of like you ever gone out in town and you see somebody and they're wearing their Kansas City Chiefs jersey, right? It's kind of like, no, this is not where you are. This is not your neighborhood. But they're like, no, but I'm proud of this. And I want to wear this. I want to I show people whose team I'm on. That's what this city was doing. And this is where Paul began his European missions trip. He takes the leap out of what is now Turkey and goes into Europe, and this is where he begins. And Paul always started in the synagogue, right? Because he said, my message is to go to the Jew first, and then from there I'll expand out to the Gentile. But the only problem is when he shows up here in Philippi, there's not that many Jews. In fact, we learn from the book of Acts that as he goes, typically a synagogue, you could start a synagogue, you had to have 10 male Jews. They don't have a synagogue. So there's not even 10 Jewish families that are present. As a result, you find that they meet by a river, which wasn't uncommon for the Jews because since washings were a part of their religious ceremony and they didn't have a synagogue, they would just go down next to the river and they would have their services there. That's where Paul goes. And as he goes, he meets a, few, a handful of people. And uh, we know from Acts, this is where a woman named Lydia, uh, someone who had a luxury business, she was a dealer in purple dyes. And she hears this message and she believes. She becomes a Christian. But Paul's ministry doesn't end there. He keeps going. And so he leaves this small Jewish little sector, and then he begins to go out into the Gentiles. And so he starts preaching this message. People are coming to faith. But while he's there and while he's doing this, there's an accusation that comes up against him. Somebody spreads the false information that Paul is saying, it's, it's not lawful for you to be a Roman. Now, that's ridiculous because Paul was a Roman. He had Roman citizenship. So it's an outright lie. But the problem with mobs is they don't necessarily stop to gather all the information. And so a mob gathers, they take him and his partner Silas, pull him aside, they beat him, and then they throw him in jail for the night. While he's in jail that night, there's an earthquake. And the earthquake is so severe that the cells open, and it would be very easy for he and Silas to just walk right on out of the prison and escape. But he won't do it. And because he doesn't do it, there's a jailer that's there. And the jailer knows because this is a Roman-like city, if you're in charge of prisoners and a prisoner escapes, it's your life if they get away. So he's shaken, figuring people have left. Paul and Silas have kept themselves and the others present. And that makes him start saying, okay, tell me more about who you are and the God that you worship. And so they do. And this guy becomes a believer as well. And then he brings his family in, and they become Christians as well. And so it's the next day the authorities come, and they say, okay, those two guys in the jail that we had, okay, just let them go, release them. And it's very interesting what Paul does. He says, no, no, we're not going anywhere. Because he said, I'm a Roman citizen. You claim to be a Roman city, you know it is illegal to beat a Roman citizen, particularly without a trial. And that scared them. That is bad news for them. Because remember, they take pride in being Romanesque. So that news getting out, that's going to be like Taylor Swift saying, secretly, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan at heart. That's going to cause a whole lot of problems on a whole lot of levels. That's what they're facing here. Paul wouldn't leave quietly. So in wisdom... He recognized the reputation of the gospel is at stake. So these guys need to correct the lie, and y'all have to escort us out of town. And by doing so, it's a proclamation, these guys did nothing wrong. Isn't that interesting? Take a note of that. When does Paul defend himself? 
It's one of the questions I got asked at my ordination board. When does Paul defend himself? Answer, when the reputation of Jesus or the gospel is at stake. He's okay with anything else uh, against him. But when that is the issue, then he's going to take a stand. And so in wisdom, he refuted this and, and made him escort him out. Well, Paul eventually did leave that city, and he left that church to continue on his missionary journeys. And that little church began to grow, and it was very healthy, to the point where later on, they discovered he's in jail. And so they said, Paul's in jail, we're going to take care of him. And they sent a care package to him while he's in prison. And he was so moved by that that he wrote this letter in response to say thanks, as well as to encourage these people. So the great thing about this letter, not trying to correct doctrinal issues like the book of Galatians. He's not trying to correct all these practical issues in which people were acting wrong. That's First and Second Corinthians. It's just a spontaneous utterance of Christian love and gratitude. There is one couple in the, in the church that doesn't get along, two women that aren't getting along, and he just makes a quick comment to say, y'all need to make sure you get along. But other than that, everything is great. And Paul, like your classic individual who would be discipling somebody, makes a point to kind of disciple them, to give them a few extra words of encouragement. And when you read the letter, I mean, it bounces all over the place. It's like Paul has ADHD. He's over here one minute and he's over here one minute. But ultimately, the message comes down to this. Let the people you encounter encounter Jesus because they encountered you. That's his exhortation. Let them have that. It's all about you guys know the truth and you know how to live. Let this be wed together. Let this be united so that that's what people encounter when they encounter you. So again, they're on a great trajectory spiritually. They're headed in the right direction. He wants to see them grow and go further. Any of you that are parents, when your kids do something great, do you affirm them and say, that's it, I'll never have to do that again? Of course not. You're continually affirming them and encouraging them. You encourage them to go further and higher. You celebrate the growth, but you don't end with that. And so as Paul makes this exhortation to him, he realizes something. The things that I want to encourage you on in your own flesh, you can't do this. You have to have the Spirit of God. And that's why he's going to pray for them. And so he's going to pray for their continued growth through a spiritual maturity. That's what this prayer is about. I want to see you grow more spirit and become more spiritually mature. Now, if you want to find something out about a person, listen to their prayers. Listen to what they pray for. You know, if the, if the worship of God is important, it's coming out when they pray. If there's a significant health issue or a deep concern in their life, you can bet that that's going to come out in the things that they pray for. If they have people that they really want to see become Christians, you're going to start hearing names, aren't you? Names of these people and these individuals. And if you want to see people grow, then you'll be praying for that as well. But again, I think most of us, and I'll put myself in this category if we're honest, we really don't know how to pray. Well, one of the best ways to learn how to pray is to see it modeled. To, to sit around somebody else who does and to learn from them. Today, we kneel with Paul. We'll cross our hands, we'll bow our heads, and we'll listen to the things that he prays for. 
And by the end, what I hope we all gather is what, what, should, what kinds of things should we be praying for? Not only for myself, but for other believers around me. In Ephesians 1, we learned he prayed for the enlightenment of the people, that they would see all the treasures that God had given them and know that this is available for you in how you live. And it was in chapter 3 where he prayed for their empowerment to say, now you have these things and you have the Spirit of God, now live it out. You know, this is a powerful engine that is in you. Now let's see this lived out in your life. Today, we go for the maturity. If you would, stand with me, please. As we read, or as I read, from Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Father, this is a prayer of depth. Make us deep. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Do men and women communicate differently? Men, don't answer that. Don't amen me. <laughs> don't want to get you in trouble. Yeah, we do, we, we do very differently. And a man's brain, when he listens to an issue, he's always trying to go, okay, what's the end goal? I've been, it's been described to me like this. When men communicate, it's kind of like there's a point here and there's a point here, and they go to the exact straight line to get there. And oftentimes with women, they're going to get there too, but they're going to go over here for a little bit, and then they're going to come back. Then they'll cross a point, and they'll come over here for a little bit, and then they'll come back and they'll cross the point. And for us, me as men, we're hearing this as we're over here, we're over here, we're always determining it. Okay, was that significant? Okay, was I supposed to remember that part? Uh, where's this going ultimately? And so we get derailed with the details. And so as we look at this prayer this morning, I thought it'd be good for you all in particular to know here's the roadmap of where Paul goes with his prayer. He's going to start out with a request. A request of God on behalf of these people, and then his desire behind why he's even uttering this request. Then he'll move into the result that he hopes is going to transform these believers because of this request, and how God's going to accomplish all of it with an ultimate goal and an ultimate aim behind their lives. So that's your map. I've got some images up here today as we're going through these points. I'm not trying to be hokey, but I am trying to give you something that gives you a mental image that will help you sort of anchor these points and remember them after the fact. So we're going to start with Paul's request. And it begins with an abounding and increasing love. An abounding and increasing love. But unlike the rock band Blue Suede, he's not just hooked on a feeling of love. All right, he's got something deeper. This is a love that is going to be established in knowledge and discernment. So his, his request isn't, now I hope you guys start learning how to love. They already are. He, he, he knows it. He's experienced it. He's seen what's happening in their lives. His prayer is that you go further, that you go even more and more. It's almost like he's saying, you know, you have a super love. I'm praying you have a super duper love. That, that we see it expanded in that way. Now, if I was to ask you this question, give me some of the words that come to your mind when you think of what is love rooted in. What words come to the surface? I think for most of us, we go, well, we'll love feelings, um, sacrifice, beauty, tenderness, um, maybe even a friend. 
I doubt most of us would have knowledge and discernment on that list. It's just not how we, it's not things we combine. It's kind of like talking about peanut butter and Brussels sprout sandwiches. You know, it's kind of like, well, you can do it, but it doesn't sound right. Well, Paul's point is that the foundation upon which you're going to love, and these levers are supposed to be based upon, has to do with not just how you feel. It has to do with the content and the character of who God is. Who is he? That's what your love is going to be rooted in. So it's a love not that's felt. It's a love actually that gets revealed to you. So when he says, I want you to have a love in real knowledge, he says, I want you to have it in an experiential way with God, but not the God you fashion in your mind in accordance with your image. I want you to have an experiential knowledge and love of God as he has revealed himself to you in and through his word. Is that countercultural in our day? You better believe it is. Because one of the highest traits of love, at least within the culture, is what? Tolerance. Tolerate what I have and what I present to you. And so if you're a loving, caring person, you won't disagree with me. You won't make me uncomfortable in any way. You'll just tell me the things that I want to hear. And a true love, in many cases, won't tell you what you want to hear. It'll tell you what you need to hear. And it'll tell you what you need to hear rooted and based in an objective truth, not just what, how you feel. Though, doesn't it help a lot when someone presents this to us with tact and gentleness, right? And same way when we do this with other people. But we want to present that which is true and which is objective. I had a good friend who was a physician assistant, and he went to the um, drugstore one day. had to pick up some medicine. And the line was long, and the lady behind the counter was overworked and overwhelmed, and she's just hustling to get everything done. And he goes up to get his stuff, and as he does, she reaches to hand him the, the, the medicine that he had. And there's a big old black spot on her hand. Now, my friend is a physician's assistant, and he looked at that, and he goes, oh, that's not good. So he's, she's real busy. What do I do about this? So he stopped, and he says, ma'am, um, I'm a physician assistant, and I want to trouble you for just a moment. She said, okay, what's that? And he said, well, that spot on your hand, I have a very big concern about that. You really need to go, and you need to see a doctor, and you need to have this checked and looked at. Will you do that? And she went, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. And she was kind of busy. And so when he left, he kind of thought, well, she's just going to shrug this off and move on. A month later, he shows up. And he goes and he goes, I know I want to follow up with that woman. And sure enough, she's working that day. When she saw him, she came out from behind the counter, ran around to him, and gave him a hug. And said, you saved my life. That was a melanoma on my hand. And because you highlighted this, the doctors have taken care of it. And it looks like we caught it in its earliest stages. I'm well cared for. And so when I hear that story and when I think about this incident, you know, my friend, he could have just said nothing. He had a knowledge, and he presented that knowledge, but he could have gone, she's just too busy. She doesn't want to hear this. She, doesn't want to, she wants to be left alone. But in wisdom, he knew, I need to speak up about this. I need to address this with her. She needs that information. And that's kind of a mark of what we see when we think about spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity can accept and present the real knowledge and people who can discern when they need to do that in light of the truth of the situation that's going on. So, obviously, if we grow in love, then we'll grow in a love for the truth. And if we do that, we'll seek to apply it, and then we'll seek to be teaching that to other people as well. But when we say this, it's not just, I know these facts. 
No, this is a truth that is meant to begin to change us so that we have the experiential love of God. And this is what drives our desires and our motives, to know him and his word so that we might understand it. I think of John 14, 21, where Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So the idea being, you have truth, you obey it, you're showing Christ your love for him. You're not earning anything. It's your way of saying, here's how I'm going to show you I love you. I'll obey you. And then in response, he begins to reveal more of himself in and through that. It's that experiential love and knowledge of Christ. And that's what Paul is praying for. Love and truth, never forget this, they're never enemies. Love and truth are never enemies. And a love like God's will abide in and then present truth, and sometimes even a truth that people don't want to know. Like, we're sinners, and we stand condemned. But until you understand and grasp that truth, until you hear that truth, you never know to listen for the cure that God has provided. God has come to take care of that through the death, burial, life, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and to redeem and to save you. So if you want your love to mature, you start by getting it rooted in truth to then apply it and love in, in ways God would, and not necessarily ways the culture would, but the ways God would have you live it out. Now, why is Paul going to ask this? What's his motive behind it? Well, he's got a desire. that These people might be able to determine the things that are excellent. Or in some cases, and some of your translations say, to find out that which is superior, to find out that which is best. So he's not talking about this is between right and wrong. He's talking about, well, this is good, but this is better. And thinking through in that way. And that takes maturity. Question, does life present things to us that aren't always black and white? I hope everybody said yeah. Yeah, it does. Things aren't always black and white. Um, True situation. There's a man who had a construction firm. And so uh, there was a guy that owed him $500,000 in the business. Well, the guy that owed the money passed away. And so as a result, the man's widow continues to live in the house, and the house is worth $150,000. And so the man, who's a Christian, began to ask himself, do I sue the estate for the money that we're due if that means this woman, this widow, is now going to lose her house? And he said, now, speaking as an individual, this is easy. I can try to work things out. But what happens when instead you work for a company and you have a responsibility to the shareholders? And as a result of that responsibility, your, your job is to collect on all these debts. Where's your higher loyalty? The world gets complex. And it isn't always easy and it isn't always black and white. Now, a sign of spiritual immaturity would be one of two areas. It's first to not recognize that some things aren't as easily answered or solved. To, to refuse that. And the way a lot of times people get around it is what they'll do is they'll make everything black and white. I just establish a formula. I learn enough Bible that I have a checklist. And so I just go, if A is B and B is C, then A is C. And that's the way I operate. And it's very heartless in many cases. But in other cases, you don't necessarily land in the right place. And often, a lot of times, the reason people do this is they're trying to flee responsibility. It's a, it's a way and a means of saying, it wasn't my call. It's what God said. But another way is in treating in Scripture things that aren't necessarily revealed, but treating them as if they are revealed things. Like, well, should I take this job or not? Should I buy this house or not? That takes maturity and thinking. 
And so often what people will do on the other end of the spectrum is they make everything mystical. They start looking for a sign, a vision. We start to turn the Bible into this crystal ball, some sort of a mystical experience. And in both those cases, you've got to realize what God is doing with you and I is he gives us freedom to make decisions on matters that are not moral. The moral, he's revealed. We're obligated for that. But there's a lot of things that aren't moral, and we have to make the decision. And God brings them in your life to mature you, to put you in the position where you don't know what to do. And so you've got to go get counsel and continue to seek God's face and go into his word and to pray. And God wants you to have to trust him so that you can't make everything on, off, yes, no, or do you computer people, ones and zeros. Not operate that way. He doesn't want you to flee responsibility. There'll be consequences to your decision. And they might be really good. And they might be really, really hard. And he wants you to trust him with those as well. That's part of growing up. That's part of a spiritual maturity. And Paul is praying that these people won't have this Pollyanna kind of faith, but a mature one. And it's a reminder to all of us. Prayer isn't just partial dependence on God. It reminds us we are totally dependent on God. We have to trust him. And we need his living and active word in our lives. We need him to be with us. In fact, the word approve here was used of determining these different types of metals. How do you determine this one's tin and this one's, I don't know, iron? That'd be kind of easy by looking at it. But the idea being you can distinguish between these two things. Not right and wrong. I'll call them left and right. I think Paul demonstrated this when he was told, you guys can leave the prison now and get out of the city. And he said, no, 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 no. Wisdom says, I'm going to defend the name and the reputation of God on this hill I'm going to die on. And I'm going to call you guys out. And you're going to have to escort me out. And you'll have your issues. You do have your issues too. I got mine. Maturity, learning how to discern between that which is just preferential or the lesser. What's really significant here? What should I surrender and give up in this circumstance? You learn significant Christians, they're not significant because they're perfect. They're significant because they struggle well when they're faced with these kinds of things. And they seek to grow in maturity. Now Paul says this kind of maturity has an intended result. That these Christians would be sincere and blameless. The word used here for sincerity, some of your translations will say purity, but you'd be pure and blameless. And the word for sincere here is broken into two words. One is called eli, which means light, and the other is krines, which is judge. So you put those together to judge by the light. And there's a picture behind it because in ancient times, a lot of times, if you were selling pottery and there was a fault in it, what you could do is you could melt wax and you could fill the crack in the pottery with the wax and then you paint over the wax. Nobody's any the wiser. And the way you would discern whether or not this thing was cracked is you would take it up and you would hold it in the eli, the light, so that you might crenaze, judge whether or not this thing had wax in it. In fact, one of the uh, mottos, if you want to be a businessman with integrity, you would say, these are without wax. Paul says, I want your lives to be without wax. I'm praying that as you're living this way, as you're discerning, as you're trusting, and as you're loving that what you'll do is your life will have an integrity to it. There'll be pure motivations behind it in the way that you live and be blameless with no offense. And Paul said this about himself, Acts 24, when he wrote, in view of this, I try to do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God 
and before men. So I love, again, he's grounded in knowledge and discernment, in character with God and in character with truth, that we would be ones that could choose between the wise, the excellent, and showing a life without fault, without wax, without hidden faults. We all got faults. The problem is not live a life without fault. It's you're not hypocritical about it. You're dealing with it, and you're not hiding it. Now, how would they live this way? How can anybody live this way? That's where Paul goes next in his prayer, that they would have the engine that would empower them and that they would be filled with the fruit or the evidence, I'll say, of righteousness. So fruit, what comes out, that's the evidence, that's the characteristic of trusting in Christ. And they're doing that, which is in line with the character and the person of God and his Holy Spirit. So again, this goes back to the overarching emphasis that Paul's making in the book as a whole. They're called to live their lives as an expression of Jesus' life. And so that means live in accordance with his character. And that doesn't mean you're out trying to follow and live the law, right? Because we live like Christ. Christ fulfilled the law. We don't have to fulfill the law. We fulfill the law of love. And what does love look like? It looks like Christ. So as you follow him, as you know him, you, become, you start to become like him. And you live in that way. But not trying to meet a list of demands. There's a great poem that says, Do this or that, the law commands. And gives me neither feet nor hands. The gospel, a new message brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. That's what Christ is doing. You're following a person, led by the person of the Holy Spirit to live in accordance with who God is. And knowing who he is. Experiencing who he is. You start in the word. And then it starts to be lived out. And all of a sudden, you start to find yourself filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's the maturity Paul's going for. And to what end? To live for the glory of God. That's it. The remarkable appearance of God. To live a life that's going to be an expression of who he is and his character. So you're rooted in him. And if you are, I'll make a guarantee, you're going to have an impact. You will have an impact on the lives around you, whether it's in your own home whether it's in the people in the workforce, whether it's people who come from other churches or people that will have nothing to do with church. You have and grow in this kind of maturity, you will see an impact. And it will always, it will always bring God glory in some way. You might not get to see what that looks like, but it always will. There's a guy named Frederick Page. He was one of these pioneers in aviation. And uh, he had this one particularly longer flight over the Middle East. And as he's going along, he hears this terrible sound. He heard the sound of a rat chewing something behind him. And so he's sitting there thinking, this is not good because I don't know what he's chewing. Is he chewing my flight controls? Is he chewing some important cables? Is he chewing lines that I need? And so in that moment, all of a sudden he realized and he remembered, you know, I remember way back in grade school learning something about rats. And that is they can't handle the higher altitudes very well. So takes the throttle, moves it up, and he begins to take the airplane, and he goes up higher and higher and higher. And he keeps going until all of a sudden he doesn't hear the chewing anymore. And he stays at that altitude until he lands. When he lands, he goes back, and he looks. Sure enough, right behind the cockpit, there is the rat, and the rat is dead. Why did I share all that? Well, this is what God wants for you. There are going to be rats in your life. You're living after him. You're pursuing him. But then these things are going to come along. And the call is like, Paul, go higher. Go higher. Closer to God. 
closer and higher to the things that he has called you to and to become like and find a maturity that will put you above the things that would bring you down. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is not only what we pray for ourselves, this is what we pray for one another. What kind of a church will we be if we pray this and God answers it? You think people find grace and mercy, compassion, love. They'd be inspired to know him. That is what we pursue.